Hello, you're very welcome to another episode of FNI Rap Chat. I just caught uh, Fergal Rock's film uh, Departures, also known as uh, uh, Then Came You. Absolutely love this. Um, if you want to go back and listen uh, to Fergal's episode, it's a really, really good one. Um, yeah, it's a very sweet, very uh, poignant, very funny uh, film. Uh, and the, the stars, Maisie William and uh, Asa Butterfield, are just brilliant uh so it was great to see Fergal there and uh yeah yeah absolutely delighted that that uh you know he's reached this point in his career and hope it does very well for him uh so another film that was screening uh was Paul Dewan's new film What Time Is Death and we caught up with himself and uh uh his producer Nick uh Franco and they'd just gotten their DCP ready for, for the festival and everything, so they were in great form. So uh, it's a really good episode. Um, I've been a huge fan of Paul's films for years. Um, his, uh, his his documentaries are incredible, going back to Barbaric Genius and um, uh, Very Extremely Dangerous. And then he had a film out last year, While You Live Shine, uh, about this very obscure music from Greece and Paddy Jordan did an incredible job on the, the cinematography uh, so it's always exciting to see what Paul is doing next um, he's a, he's, as we talked about he has an incredible talent for finding stories so uh, we hope you enjoy this episode Paul Duran and Nick, Nick Franco, uh, thanks very much for coming into the studio. Um, so I'll just ask you first, so um, you both work in documentary, you, Paul, you kind of straddle drama as well, and uh, but what is it about documentary that keep, keeps bringing you back? It's uh, It can be quite a cruel mistress because you don't have that much control, you're, you're only as good as your subject, so what, why do we do it? Well, I think it's the opposite. I think you have a lot more control with documentary in a way because... Having done a lot of drama, having produced and directed quite expensive dramas, um, you're at the mercy of so many things. The more money you spend, the more you have to worry about, you know, getting big name actors, getting a, you know, I mean, hiring um, talent that mm-hmm. may disagree with you or you're with the goals of your project and fundamentally the more you're at the mercy of your funders because you're spending a lot of their money. Part of the reason I end up doing documentary and enjoying it as much as I do is because I can make films quite cheaply that way, which means you're under the radar. Um, for instance, with the real art scheme, which I've made, I've made two films under that, which is like 80, under 80,000 euros. You have complete control, complete artistic control. Nobody gives you notes. Nobody tells you what to do. And the film belongs to you in the end. So I think you have 100% control. Obviously, documentary is different to drama in that it's not scripted, but your control is in the way that you choose your subjects and the way you frame the your relationship with them and you know it's 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 difficult to express but you know you do I'm not a control freak anyway I tend to be quite uh, have quite a light touch in terms of how I deal with people so I uh, I enjoy that aspect of it and I do think it's probably the most the closest you can come to just being a not quite a one man band but mm-hmm. maybe a three man band and how w- would you approach it as kind of you're collaborating with your subject yeah i mean sort of because of course, 
you don't want them to come into the edit and tell you what to do. So your yeah. collaboration has to have rules. And I find that the way to do that is to be very clear with people about what their, where their responsibility ends and where your responsibility begins. And it's a mistake to get involved with people who feel overly controlling towards their... Um, the way they're portrayed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's a nightmare. As soon as you get involved with people like, you know, rock stars or whatever, right. you basically have to think about their brand or their records mm-hmm. deal or whatever. So, you know, if you're working with people who are less egotistical, which I t- try to do, you just have to be honest with them and, and not distort what they're about. Yeah. Nick, do you have a pr- perspective on that? Um, yeah, I agree. I think, uh, you know, I think Paul, Paul as you know, is a great director and, uh, and a documentary like this rather than collaboration does need direction and Paul gives that and he allows a little bit of freedom within that, which is, which is fantastic for everyone working around him. Uh, I think to do a project at that kind of budget, you have to find a lot of people who believe in you and we do believe in Paul, yeah. <laughs> regardless of what everyone else thinks. Um, and I, th- I think, you know, his past films are just, makes it easier for people to be attracted to what he's actually doing and yes he does allow a bit of freedom with the intro and there's some special effects stuff that we've done and it's kind of like yeah let's try that and and that that goes a long way um we are working with other projects that's uh, a little bit more difficult so but you know everyone's got their own agenda and we have to try and uh, work around that to make things because the documentary we you know, it has to be his vision. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we try and support that. Okay. Yeah. Could you tell us about uh, what time is death? Well, where can I start? Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cauty have been, I've been aware of them for a very, very long time, uh, really since I was a teenager, because Bill was a manager managing rock bands in the late 70s and early 80s, Teardrop Explodes, Echo and the Bunnyman. He became quite uh, notorious for his uh, strange behaviour as a rock band manager, uh, seeming to kind of design rock tours by ley lines and different kinds of occult <laughs> significance rather than, you know, where the band actually had an audience. So you ended up with Echo and the Bunnymen playing, like, in the Outer Hebrides and places <laughs> like that. Um, and then... In the late 80s, he founded the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo with Jimmy Cauty, and they were a hip-hop band to start off with, and started out by releasing some of the, the most, I don't know, unconventional, I suppose is a kind way to put it, raps. I mean, you know, you're talking about a bloke who's already in his 30s, learning to rap and using samples and all that. And they made a couple of albums that were very, you know, the first album, 1987, What the Fuck is Going On, was notorious largely because they used lots and lots and lots of uncleared samples. And ABBA sued them very, you know, successfully, and they had to destroy all the remaining copies of the album, which they did by driving to Helsinki with a car full of... um, the remainder of the copies of the album to burn them in front of ABBA's offices <laughs> and give away the gold disc to a woman they found on the street who they thought looked a bit like Agneta from ABBA. So, you know, then from that unpromising beginning, they ended up becoming one of the top singles acts in the world by 1991 with um, songs like Last Train to Trans Central and 3AM Eternal. And all that's just grand. I mean, that's just pop music or whatever. But uh, fundamentally, they then did the most extraordinary thing, which was they kind of recast their entire music career as an art project by deleting their back catalogue so it could never be reissued or licensed for TV or movies or whatever, burning all their money, a million pounds, in a in the middle of the night in a boathouse in Jura in the north of Scotland, 
and touring with a film called The Cave Foundation Burn a Million Quid, where they sat and asked the audience to explain to them why they had done what they did. Which you can imagine the uh, the response. I mean, they, they brought it to, they weren't just doing it in art galleries. They they went to, they tried to go to Barlini Prison in Glasgow, but they were stopped. They did it in, you know, they travelled around the UK and Ireland showing the film and eventually realised that it was, a, it was not a good thing to do. It was not getting them anywhere. They uh, then wrote a contract between themselves not to speak about the money burning for 23 years. They wrote it on, a, on, on the side and the top of a hire car, which then they then pushed off a cliff in Cape, <laughs> Cape Wrath in the north of Scotland, hitchhiked back to, to London and then didn't work together again for 23 years. So when I, I'd been working with Bill for a few years on another film, which is about his art, and he had to take a year out because the 23-year moratorium was up and he had to do a year. He was spending a year working with Jimmy on a project that he couldn't tell me anything about. So <clears throat> I, uh, when it was advertised that they were doing this three-day event in Liverpool around the relaunch of the Justified Ancients of Moomoo after 23 years, I signed up and paid 100 quid to be one of the people, 400 people that were allowed to be present. And that's where they announced their new project. And that was what gave me the idea to do a second film um, which would be more about Bill and Jimmy and their relationship and their work. Okay. Uh, so you've kind of been in the Bill Drummond sphere. sphere. For a while. <laughs> For a while, yeah. yeah. Cool. It's a good place to be. And uh, Nick, how did you come to the project? Well, uh, you know, I've, I've, again, through Nine and Paul for a while, we, we help each other out every now and then. So yeah. um, we did a project in Greece um, a white called "While You Live Shine" about uh, the uh, Merloy music in um, the Epirus area of uh, Greece, and uh, soon after that, he said, "Oh, well, I need a grade done for Best Before Death," so I helped out with that. Yeah. And said, oh, do you want to do this next project? So you know, we, uh, Paul is has a talent for finding amazing stories, you know, unconventional stories, stories that don't, don't often get told. Yeah. And rather than going for the the mainstream this is going to sell he just finds really really interesting yeah. stories and brings them to life yeah. I want to find the ones that can sell too <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we might talk about that later um, I, I love uh, While You Live Shine oh thank you uh, it was really beautiful That was, would you say that would be one of your more experimental how did you approach that side of things documentary yeah it was I hadn't made a film in about five years when that came up and it was a very very small amount of money I got 48,000 euros from the Irish film from the from the Arts Council and you know 48,000 euros sounds like a lot of money when you say it fast but actually it isn't, it isn't it's short film budget really so mm. um, and I wanted to make this film in the mountains of Greece I'd never been there before I'd never I don't speak Greek I didn't I didn't know anything about it so I was kind of trying to figure out how to make a film about a culture I didn't really understand and in a place that I didn't know with people and I'd never met before. You also had to shoot in America as well. Well, that was afterwards, yeah. Okay. That was, that we did that after we'd kind of shot the, the main bulk of the film. So I just sat down with Paddy Jordan, who is the cameraman who I had just um, been recommended and who turned out to be an absolute uh, absolute diamond. Yeah. And we just talked about how to, uh, how the approach to filming and, you know, very simple things like, um, like, allowing takes to go on um, if they were working to run on and not worrying about coverage and just trying to keep keep things in one shot. So there's a lot of very, very long takes in 
while you live shine which was something that was very new to me because I'd usually worked on documentaries where you were kind of just frantically trying to get coverage the whole time but Paddy is a master cameraman and he's able to focus pull himself as he's working so he can really keep a shot going and keep it alive for a very long time so we have shots in the film that are like five six seven minutes long and they don't get boring because you know Paddy's kept the, the frame alive and it's, uh, it yeah. works well with the music and the dancing and the landscape and all that um, you kind of touched on distribution there. So, that, that how do you kind of uh, try and get the films out? I know it's a, it's a tricky one. It's quite difficult. To <laughs> yeah, they yeah. usually kind of escape. You know? <laughs> right. It's more like, um, well, I've been quite lucky because uh, my previous three films, all of which were very um, low budget all ended up in distribution and are all available, streaming and DVD and all that. And then, yeah. you know, While You Live Shine has just been picked up. It's going on release in Greece uh, at the beginning of March. I'm going to go over there with Nick cool. for that. And uh, we've got an American distributor who wants to take it on for the USA. So that's, I mean, yeah. for a film that was made for 48,000 euros yeah. and is not conventional in, yeah. in any sense, I'm really pleased. So that's, but I mean, that the film was premiered a year ago so it's mm. taken a year to get to that point so you can't really yeah. if you're if you want to make money out of it you're you know yeah and i want to say i want to actually say with making money at the moment no. <laughs> yeah, yeah even with distribution yeah no. yeah um the so yeah you talked mm. about paddy's uh the kind of cinematography like how, how do you collaborate with cinematographers generally generally do you give them a lot of freedom um well, I, I mean, I've, I suppose the two people I've collaborated with most are Paddy and Robbie Ryan, both of whom are absolutely stunning cinematographers. And I mean, with people like that, you know, you, you, you don't tell them what to do. I mean, you yeah. really don't. But you have yeah. to give them, you have to give them guidance. You know, you have to give them a friend because you know they want to help. They want to be, and you know, particularly when you're doing documentary, it's it's there's no script, there's no. So, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about what you want and what the feel should be. And you talk about things like aspect ratios and, uh, you know, colour palettes and stuff a little bit. But it's fundamentally with documentaries, it's suck it and see because you get what you get. So I suppose really it's just a question of kind of um, you kind of just go out there with them and you hope that you've got a good enough working relationship that if they feel something isn't working that they can kind of give you the heads up and yeah. you can figure out a different way to do it while you still have time yeah. or if they think of an idea for doing something that you haven't thought of that they can let you know and yeah. without breaking the flow of what's going on because one of the things about documentary is what you don't want is somebody who kind of gets in the way of the moment that's happening because you mm-hmm. want to capture a moment of real life not position people or put them in light or whatever you try try to steer them in the right direction, but you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. You want to keep them feeling like it's just a conversation. And that's the skill. I mean, I think both Robbie and Paddy have a very, very good way with people. They're both very friendly, both very unassuming, both great fun. And mm. that keeps things from becoming too professional feeling, you know, which is the worst thing with documentaries. I think when you have the situation where you're micromanaging people who are not actors, yeah, um, you can't do that. Yeah. And with this film, um, what sort of reaction have you gotten in Greece? Because you're, were you conscious of being an outsider and coming and bring like kind of shining a light on this obscure well, it's, <laughs> type it's, of music? It's te- it's really kind of you know. I mean, I, I like I say, I went to Greece, never been there before, didn't speak the language. All I knew was this really interesting place where they have this music that goes back two thousand plus years. Yeah. You know, uh, two thousand years that we know of, probably much more. 
and it's very very personal and the people who listen to it and dance to it are all the people from the village and they're not really they don't really have a lot of outsiders there so yeah. it's kind of I suppose, you know, I just went to, I mean, I, I was lucky in that I, I made contact with Chris King, who is the person who has done most to bring the area to attention. And they trust Chris. And because he trusted me, they trusted me. But at the same time, it was a big, um, it was a big ask. And it was mm. quite, you know, heavy on my shoulders a bit. But what we did was we brought the film back there before it was actually 100% finished. While we still could make changes, we brought back a a copy, the best possible version that we could, and screened it for the entire village. It was kind of an amazing experience because right. they they screened it in a natu- in an amphitheater on the side of a mountain on a big screen after just after wow. the sun went down. Musicians played beforehand. The entire locality, everybody turned out. The mayor made speeches in Greek, yeah. you know. Um, and then they watched the film and they loved it. I mean, yeah. really, I could hear they were laughing their asses off at right. some of the stuff. In it. And the funny thing is, it's like another film I made in Natan, which is about a French, a story about a French um, father of French cinema who had been completely forgotten about. It's a weird thing. I mean, you want to, you know, talk about risky. I mean, going to France and telling them that they don't know about their own cinema history, that's risky. <laughs> um, but, you know, people respond well if you do it in, in, in a way that has enough humility and doesn't seem like you're kind of, you know, full of yourself if you just do it in a kind of a questioning way, in an open way. Yeah. I think the biggest compliment in the head is that uh, because it was an outside perspective, they captured, you captured something that the Greeks themselves couldn't capture. Right. And that, that went a long way. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, could you tell me about some of the challenges with this film? With um, uh, What Time Is Death? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> the challenge, the biggest challenge was getting Bill and Jimmy to let us do it because, right. I don't know, I mean, they haven't, they haven't, um, they've had a lot of approaches about. I yeah. mean, a lot of people. Um, very strange story, which is that um, the director of Searching for Sugar Man, after his death, his wife sent a note to Bill saying that the project he had been trying to get off the ground before he died was a film he wanted to make about the KLF. You know, okay. so wow, yeah. I mean, there have been a lot of people, um, which they would have said no to because they said no to everything. A lot of people won't tell their story because it's an extraordinary story. Um, I got them at the right time, but even still it was kind of, and I mean, and, and I had an advantage because Bill already kind of trusted me and Jimmy kind of was willing to take me on, yeah. on, on, on Bill's word to a degree. Yeah. Still, you know, I mean, they are extremely protective of their reputation and not so much their reputation, but they don't want anybody misinterpreting what they do. They were very badly burned by a documentary that BBC made in 1995, 23 years ago, yeah. which portrayed them as that the money burning was kind of an, uh, uh, an attempt to turn the, that they were trying to sell the ashes of the million quid as an artwork, which they weren't, but the film pretended that they were and kind of, you know, kind of cheapened the story. Right. And they haven't, invo- haven't, they haven't um, said yes to any approaches since then. So when I said to them, look, you're doing this new thing, you've set up a business, you've set up a company, you've got a website, mm. Um, and you've got no publicity. Nobody's paying any attention because they'd had this right. big launch in Liverpool, but but it, they structured it so that the reveal about mummification was on the third day when all the journalists had already left. So uh, And it was a Friday night and nobody was going to stick around and write it. So I said, look, you got no publicity out of your big three-day event for what you're really doing for your new project. How about if I make a documentary about the first year of it and they kind of grudgingly I mean Nick okay. was there you remember it was <laughs> yeah. it was kind of like pulling teeth okay. but they said yeah maybe okay yeah sure and then I was also there the second day of filming when we had some really interesting news <laughs> <laughs> yeah we filmed with Bill and Jimmy the first day and then the second and it was great we had a lovely time and then the second day we turned up and uh, Bill said Paul um, can we have a word 
And I said, sure, Bill. And him and Jimmy took me aside and said, we've decided not to be in the film anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So having, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably good at, uh, you know, appearing calm when things are not calm. So I just yeah. carried on. We, we did a good day's filming with, uh, we had a lot of other stuff we had to film anyway. But as, as it turned out, um, Bill and Jimmy then kind of withdrew from the film. But what they really did was they were there around the edges of the film all the time. And we f- sort of constructed the story out of all the people that work with them and all the people that have been with them for, because, you know, a lot of the people that work with them now have been with them since the 90s. So we were able to tell the whole story of, you know, the, the KLF and the Jams and the Time Lords and all that to an extent through their collaborators. And it was a lot of fun and it was yeah. a lot more interesting than I think if, if we had just done it in a conventional way. Mm. And also Bill and Jimmy are now more or less happy with it, you know, which mm. they wouldn't have been if we'd been interviewed. Uh, it's, not that, it's not that they're not in it. Yeah, they just yeah. don't want to speak in the film. Okay. So, so you, it, as in sit-down interviews. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. and at, at the very end, on the last day of filming, we were just packing up our gear, wrapped everything. Yeah, I just said, oh, a, that's it, it's a wrap. Yeah. And Jimmy said, oh, I want to be in it now. <laughs> So and then well we actually turned it around and got got something of them in the film. But I mean, you know, the thing is Bill and Jimmy are all the way through the film. They're just not um conventionally they're not they're kind of they're present all the way through and you feel them all the way through, but mm. they're not kind of at the center of it. Mm. Um my editor Owen McDonough said it's like they're the hole in the middle of the donut, you know. And that's that was a nice way of putting it. Right, okay. Because... Uh, you have made a lot of films about artists, so mm. are you kind of used to that kind of volatility? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I kind of I have a high I have a high tolerance for weird behaviour, <laughs> and uh, to an extent, I much prefer people who are very. I mean, it's much easier when people are upfront rather than being passive aggressive mm. because I've dealt with people who won't have the balls to actually say I'm not going to be in the film but we'll make it difficult for you and we'll disappear or not turn up and it's like yeah. that's way worse if somebody yeah. says well, we've made a decision you know you just go okay well, well we'll figure out how to work around that you can work with anything more or less anything unless you know somebody died or whatever and you, you kind of go okay we've got a problem there yeah nobody died <laughs> uh, I saw very extremely dangerous uh, years ago I loved it um, I guess as, as in terms of like crazy documentary filmmaking experiences, you probably can't get much tougher than that. It was definitely one of the most unpleasant filming experiences I've ever had because I was filming it. There was no money, and I was out there by myself in the middle of nowhere in a car full of people who were off their heads on various substances. Yes, yeah, maybe just give it. Okay, to, yeah, yeah. Um, I had hit a brick wall with my first film, Barbaric Genius, about John Healy. It had run out of money and there was no way of finishing it. And just around then, I discovered that somebody I'd been trying to track down a few years earlier, uh, this outlaw called Jerry McGill, who had been a rockabilly musician in Memphis in the mid-50s and disappeared completely, that he had resurfaced after a long prison sentence and he wanted to contact me because I'd left some messages in different, you know, message boards around the internet looking for him. So uh, it turned out he ha- he was suffering from terminal cancer and he had been given a couple of years to live and he wanted to make a comeback to recording before he died and he wanted to kind of, he'd spent his life on the fringes of the music business involved in criminality and drug dealing and uh, all kinds of bad stuff. He'd been in jail, prison, proper prison, three times like for a total of about 24 years, 23, 24 years of his, of his, of his life and he wanted to make a re- a comeback as a recording artist because he'd had a huge amount of potential in the 60s and 70s that he never tapped into. So I kind of thought, well, this is a feel-good story. This is something that could be really commercial. This could be like um, 
you know that uh, movie with Jeff Bridges and Colin Farrell, the country singer. I can't remember. It was uh, uh, I can't remember the name. Of it. Uh, Wild Heart. Or yeah, something. yeah, yeah, something yeah. Crazy Heart. Crazy Heart. Yeah. I kind of thought it would be like that, and it did not turn out that way at all. <laughs> it was. It turned into this kind of very. I mean, Jerry, who's dead now, God rest him, um, was a downright twisted criminal, um, bad to the bone addict, right. painkiller addict. Um, who used people who stole for, for kicks, who was uh, dangerous to be mm. around, as mm. the title yeah. suggests. And I ended up spending, because there was no money to actually have a crew, and I was in the middle of nowhere, so there wasn't any, you know, so I, a lot of the time I was just me doing camera and sound with in places I'd never been to before, with a guy driving the car who was a three-time felon, who was carrying weapons, who, if he had been stopped by the police, uh, and they found that he was in possession of, you know, firearms and knives and drugs, he would have gone straight back to prison and God knows what would have happened to the rest of us in the car as mm. accessories. You know, it was it was not a very safe position to be in, but I kind of had started it and I was neck, neck deep in it. So I kept going until I got to the point where he put us in a position where I thought we were going to actually die by strangling his, his girlfriend while she was driving the car down the middle of a freeway. And I just, at that point, next time I got out of the car, I said, I'm not getting back in that car or any car driven by him ever again. And... Uh, made the film with what was there. And we f went back a year later and f did a sort of a coda with um, Jerry, now off painkillers and reasonably sane. And uh, it was an interesting experience showing him the finished film, actually, because he really, my my, my um, estimation of Jerry went up because he watched the film and it did not flinch from showing his bad behaviour, as you know. I mean, threatening to break his girlfriend's jaw, trying to strangle her. You know, yeah. we cut out some we cut out some stuff, but we didn't cut out some really bad stuff. And um, And he said, you know, but you told it honestly and you told it uh, and it's and he said it's really hard to watch yourself when you're that you know effed up but mm. uh, but you told the truth and that was that was it takes a man to say that you know he, yeah. didn't, he didn't try to back off from it or say you misinterpreted or you distorted he just said yeah that's what I was like yeah. so you know uh, and then he died in um, in, in, a, in a you know in, in a relatively in a calm and uh, an atmosphere of calm and peace which was good I mean yeah. you know, at the end of his life but it was a very it wasn't an easy film to make and it's not an easy film to watch, but yeah. uh, I'm proud of it because it does tackle a certain kind of thing about the legendary kind of idea, the legendary mm. outlaw, the bad guy. And, you know, they're always surrounded by this haze of mystique, but actually there's no, they're not fun to be around. They're terrible. Did, did you come, did you feel like you came out as a better filmmaker or, you know, what kind of, how do you look back on it now? Because it looked kind of traumatic. Yeah. It was traumatic, but I mean, I suppose it's just one of those things. I mean, every film you make should probably add to your range. Mm. And certainly, I mean, I was learning on the job, you know, I mean, I was learning when I was making my first film, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I, as I say, we had to stop filming. And when I went back to complete it after I'd done the filming on Very Extremely Dangerous, I was able to complete Barbaric Genius in a much better way because I'd learned stuff about what I could do and what I couldn't do. Yeah. And made it a much more immediate film because I was less hung up on. I I I I had started out doing factual TV for television, um, and that's very interview based. So I had mm -hmm. kind of brought that technique with me to film, and then gradually I realised that the sort of talking heads interview is inherently. I wouldn't say it's inherently uncinematic, but it's certainly not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of stopped doing sit down interviews unless I absolutely have to, and. Uh, the Very Extremely Dangerous was kind of the first film where I really realised that you could get away from that kind of thing. Mm. You know, we still did sit-down interviews, but we used very few of them. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, maybe you could both talk to this in terms of, uh, especially with documentary, when you're, like, 
you must need to have so many potential projects all the time and how do you uh, kind of keep your list together um, do you have kind of tips for filmmakers on how, how to kind of you know I think you got to find things that you're passionate about right. and uh, you know I'm, I'm I find everything Paul does very interesting yeah. but I'm doing other stuff like the last film I did was uh, myself was with Stephen Hawkins okay. um, just before he died on right. quantum physics so, that's you why you died <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, it actually someone did say that um <laughs> So, and I'm reading quantum physics, so I, I just right. go the other extreme. And like, yeah. so it's really, and yes, you, you have to have lots of projects, lots of ideas, but it's it's hard. It, I, I just, I don't know how Paul does it, and like, I don't know how I do it. Right. Oh, yeah, I yeah. just think it's, you just got to keep going, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you juggle a lot of plates because most of them are going to fall. Mm. You know, the chances are, I mean, you know, you, you have to develop three or four projects for every one that gets made, you know? Yeah. I've been lucky the past few years because I haven't, I haven't developed a lot. Of, I mean, even this week, even last week, I'd been working for the last year on making a, 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 getting a documentary made about Jackie Shane, incredible story of this transgender soul singer from the 60s who had been, you know, had had hit singles mm. as an out trans person in the 60s. And uh, we were quite well along the way towards um, starting work on that. She died. So you kind of go, okay, uh, okay, back to the drawing board. That... Happens, yeah. you know, if you're right. dealing with people who are in their eighties, you know that's the risk of documentary. Yeah. You don't know what you're gonna, you don't know which projects, and and some of the the most promising projects are the ones that just die, just fall apart, or somebody pulls out, or somebody dies, and you know, yeah, yeah, you know, that's it. Um, a question we ask uh, most of our guests is if there was any advice that you could give to yourself when you were starting out, or to generally for kind of young filmmakers that standing out, starting out. Would you have any uh, pearls of wisdom? Learn how to use a spreadsheet. <laughs> Learn how to read a contract. Be a producer. Be your own producer. Right. Because that's the thing I've, I've dealt with. I'm, I get sometimes get paid to go and talk to students, you know, film students and all that. And I was at one gathering of about 30 people and I said, OK, how many people here are directors? And, you know, 15, 20 people put up their hands. How many people here are writers? 10 people put up their hands. How many people here are producers? One person puts up their hand, and I was like, right, you guys, you all have to be producers, because otherwise, if you don't be producers, you'll just be giving 20% or 40% of your earnings away to somebody who doesn't know any more than you, but who has the patience to learn how to read a contract and the patience to learn how to make how to fill out a spreadsheet. Because fundamentally, producing at this level, I mean, mm -hmm. the stuff I do, and even bigger, I mean, I've produced drama series and stuff, um, You, there's nobody... There's nobody who teaches you how to do it. You learn it from experience. And to be perfectly honest, a lot of the, a lot of what I learned about producing, I learned from being a director, working with producers and watching them make mistakes and going, I will never make that mistake and learning. And then you make your own mistakes and they're OK, but it's OK. If you make a mistake on your own project, it's your own project. Yeah. If somebody makes a mistake, as happened to me many times, and messes up your project because they're... <laughs> not really that clued in as a producer, mm. you feel really bad about it. So, you know, I would say to every filmmaker out there, start thinking about producing. And <clears throat> don't be afraid of it, because the only person, you know, the only person who can give you permission to be a producer is you. Yeah. I was brought up on spreadsheets. Right. <laughs> From okay. Windows 3.1. Okay. I've always been in spreadsheets. My father had a construction company. I did quantity surveying for him. I did that, all that kind of stuff. So... Yeah, it's just second nature to me. Yeah. I, yeah, you know, yeah, and everything you do in life is about money. Right. You pay your rent. You have to like work out your grocery budget and all the rest of it. Yeah, film is exactly the same. Yeah, you yeah, 
so um, uh, yeah, Paul's right. You know, and then you can be creative because then well, you know yeah. how you do. It's yeah. true. It's, it's, it's just I hate this myth that if you're creative, you have to be kept. Of, I think mm. there's a lot of people in the film industry who kind of profit from keeping that going. The idea that if you're a filmmaker, you shouldn't be bothered with. Mm. Uh, I heard a story about um, Neil Jordan years ago. Um, a, a writer came across Neil Jordan when he was making his very first film, uh, Angel. And he was in the National Library and he had a big load of books all up, piled up around him. And the guy came up and uh, thinking he was he was coming he was writing and came up and Jordan was going through all the budgets going through all the spend on the film all the accounts yeah and that was his first film as a director and as a writer and I think that's one of the reasons somebody like Neil Jordan has had a career is because he does not allow anything to escape him and he wants to make sure if there's money being spent that he knows who's getting it yeah and why and as soon as you fall for the myth of the creative person who is above all that you're going to end up screwed yeah Um, something we talk about on the podcast a lot is kind of the dark side of being a filmmaker um, and we find that, you know, you don't get to hear it that much. So the rejection, also sometimes the the, the long periods where you're not making films. <laughs> How do you deal with those? <laughs> you don't. Well, you know, I, I just came out of a five-year period where I was working constantly all the time, um, but I'd been kind of doing script writing really because I'd made um, a TV series called Amber for RT, which did very well internationally. The Americans were very into it and very into working with uh, myself and uh, my co-producer on that project on developing new ideas for American TV. So basically, I was getting paid to write scripts, which is fun, but it's not what I do. I'm a director. And then the other thing about that is if you spend three years writing and then nothing gets made, the money that you've been paid is gone, spent, and... You have nothing to show except a pile of documents that are already, they belong to somebody else because you've been paid to write them and they're not going to go any further. And, you know, they're of limited use. So, um, yeah, you know, that five years was not spent doing nothing, but it was spent doing things that probably, that led in a direction that didn't really, was, you know, like a a dead end. So um, I've kind of come, you know, and... That is depressing, but I came out of it kind of went like, okay, I'm going to try and do as much as I can. So after a year of sitting and writing emails, I had three projects on the on the go. So that, that, that was a good thing. And all three of those are made and finished now, and uh, now I need a break. But uh, <laughs> I think you just have to be prepared for the fact that there are going to be long periods where you're not doing, not getting what you want done. But it's always worth analysing whether what you're doing is what you want to be doing. Because you can be very, very busy, as I was, doing something that ends up being of no earthly use to you and leads you down a dead end. And uh, that time is never going to come back. Yeah. I tend to, um, I tend to struggle a lot. Right. Um, I do quite well, but uh, I tend to... I, f- I find Paul, in his approach to filmmaking, is a, a lot more written a lot more creative and stuff like that. He can edit, he can do other things, but I find I tend to expand my technical skills base. So I can grade, I can do CGI, I can do okay. uh, After Effects, uh, yeah. Fusion, Smoke. You know, yeah. I learn all these things and yeah. it helps communicate to other people what they're doing. So when you go in and you say, oh, how much is this going to cost? They'll give you a figure and then as a producer, you can go, well, actually, I know how to do this and okay. it's going to cost A, Y, and Z. We yeah, can yeah. take a shortcut there. Yeah, and, yeah. and that works quite well for me. That's yeah. how I, I get by. Um, you know, but, you know, you, you have to do everything, yeah. everything to point, but 
you know, you have yeah. to kind of say at one point say, right, okay, I want to just concentrate on this one thing for this project. Yeah, and yeah. do that. That's amazing. I've never come across a producer who had that kind of. Yeah, okay, I, I, I've just come from a background where I've, I, the, the producing side was always there. Yeah. And uh, therefore, I just impre- increased my skills base. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I graded Best Before Death. I've graded this film. Uh, with, I've worked with uh, uh, Paul and uh, Michael Higgins to do the, the opening sequence, which uh, Michael built this amazing model. And then we we uh, green screened it and we cut out the green screen. And I, I cut out the green screen and then do all the other effects. Then we sent it back to Michael. Yeah, it yeah. Just, it, it, you can do so much more when, when you just... Allow yourself the opportunities to do that. Yeah, yeah, I can hear. It. There's lots of producers listening to this who are getting really scared now because they don't <laughs> have the skill set. You know? This is intimidating. I know it's good. Um, another thing we like to talk about is, uh, so if you get your film made, and then it's that's kind of the hard part is, you know, festivals and distribution. Again, there's no there's no film school for that. So, is there anything that you've kind of picked up over the years uh, that you should or shouldn't do? It's changing all the time. I mean, right. it's just a, it's an incredibly fluid thing. I mean, when I started making films, which is a real, nearly 30 years ago, festivals just existed as places where, you know, if you made a film, festivals would show it because there was a, it was expensive to make films, you know. Mm. Um, you couldn't just, you know, you had to get film, you had to have film cameras, you had to have processing. Now the equation has turned upside down completely. There are far, far, far more films that can be shown in, in, in all the film festivals in the world. So the film festivals have become the arbiters of taste and the guide the, 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 the guide to whether your film is worth anything or not is whether it gets shown in one of the big 10 or 15 festivals around the world. So those festivals have suddenly become... I mean, I've heard stories of festivals telling filmmakers to cut a half hour of their film and they'll show it, you know, which is absolutely outrageous wow. behaviour. Yeah. But they get they get away with it or they think they can because they go, well, we're the ex-film festival, you know. Mm. So, yeah, I know, it's, it's, it's just a constant flux. And I think there's an interesting thing happening at the moment, which is that some of the big, very big film festivals are actually, have actually lost their luster. You hear people talking about a couple of the big film festivals mm. now and they say, well, there was nothing good this year, like literally almost nothing. And people are saying that festivals that had been at the second rank are now the ones to go to for the really interesting films because the big festivals are just turning everything down except for the stuff that has the right kind of clickbait star power stuff. So it's it's a it's a constant flux and I mm. think really all you can do as a filmmaker is make the best film you can, try to bear a couple of very, very simple things in mind like short is always good, especially if you're making documentaries. I mean, I try not to go above 90 minutes and try to aim for 80 minutes because documentaries play longer than dramas. And try to have something in the... Try to make sure that the opening of your film has something in it that is a grabber of some kind, you know. And try to make sure that you collect any personal contacts you possibly can by going to I mean Galway Film Flat is absolutely great for that Dublin Film Festival is great for that you have people there who will introduce you to if you've got a film going around they'll introduce you to programmers they'll introduce you to contacts and just get as many people as you can in your address book or on your phone that you can kind of say when you've got your film finished you can directly contact them and go I'm submitting this can you please make sure it gets seen because if you don't have I mean you know unless you're quite well known already there's no guarantee they're even going to really watch your film to the end yeah I picked up a book (laughs) (laughs) I didn't go to film school but I probably wish I did go to film school it made my life a lot easier yeah but um, just find the best people you can work with yeah 
you know, uh, and find people who are passionate and give it their all. Yeah. Uh, I suppose that's all I can really advise. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, yeah. really, I don't know how I'm here. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> you where got I'm going. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, because we couldn't afford Aer Lingus. <laughs> uh, what is your least favourite? And then to finish on a high note, what's your favourite part of making films? Oh, my least favourite part is people who think they know what they're doing and don't. Right. My, hey, you're talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> present company excluded for the moment. And not asking. Is that, is that part of the problem? People are afraid to ask or to... It's okay no, no, to... no. People aren't afraid to ask. There's too many people out there just want to ask and say, look, can you do this for nothing? And, and that really annoys me. Like, right. Even though we have low budgets, yeah. we make sure everyone's paid. Yeah. Paul, Paul especially. Mm. And there's a lot of people out there who want to be in it just for the glory and the glamour mm-hmm. and it's, this is not about that yeah. it's about hard work and effort and passion and, and wanting to be part of it yeah. so uh, probably my least favourite is um, yeah those the the few people out there who will you know walk over everyone else to try and get where they think they want to be and they really haven't got the talent to do it. It's yeah. not like you're talking about somebody specific here. No, no. <laughs> well, actually, probably loads of people. That are <laughs> Lots of specific people. Yeah, my least favourite part of it is um, paperwork, and spreadsheets and contracts and music returns and mm. music cue sheets and deliverables. Deliverables. Uh, I hate everything. You always give that to me to do. Oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> well, well, we'll see. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just it's tedious, but it has to be done. And the only way... Not to do it is to have somebody that you pay to do it. And if you're working on the kind of budgets we do, usually you just have to do it yourself. You mm. sit there and just slog and probably make mistakes if you're me. And then the paperwork gets sent back and then you have to redo it. And then you, yeah, anyway, that's what I hate. And your favourite part? Finishing, completing the thing. Yeah. Sitting down and watching it on this big screen. Yeah. Having Paul text me this morning and say, DCP looks great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful feeling. Yep. <laughs> Uh, my favourite part? I, I don't know. I just like making films. I really yeah. like every aspect of it. I like the filming part of it, even when it's difficult. Um, I like the editing part of it because I work with really good editors, uh, Owen McDonough and Tony Cranston. I like the... I just really enjoy making films. And the problem for me is then when you finish, you have to start all over again and, you know, you have to think of something else to do and go, OK, but, you know... I really just like the when every every just getting on these early crappy cheap Ryanair flights to go somewhere to do a film stand in the middle of a field and film people doing bizarre things, you know it's it's a privilege it's a real I I I have to you know I keep reminding myself how incredibly lucky I am to do the work I'm doing even though I'm you know it's it's financially non viable and man it's just a lot of fun and I have met some of the most incredibly interesting. And lovely and some awful, but mostly really lovely people and had the most extraordinary adventures because I've been doing these crazy films. And it's just, it never stops being interesting. Yeah, my father still doesn't think I do a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. does a proper job. Yeah. That's yeah. that thing. Find something you love and you'll never work <laughs> again, right? Oh, yeah. That's it. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Yeah. You'll never, 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 never um, cash a check again. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Thanks so much for coming in. That was Thank great. You. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you.